Hey everyone, grace and peace to you. My name is Evan Wickham, and I'm one of the pastors here at Park Hill Church in San Diego, and I think you are in for a treat with this episode of our podcast. Um, You're about to hear a live recording from our April House of Learning, and that event was all about deconstruction and how Christians can doubt faithfully in the Church of Jesus, or at least how we should be able to do so. Um, So, before I talk about this event and set up the rest of the content on this episode, I want to take a step back and ask, what is House of Learning? House of Learning is a new initiative as of 2023 uh, that we're doing as a church. It's monthly. It happens on the last Sunday night of every month in our church building, uh, except uh, July and December. We're taking those months off. Um, And what we do at these events is we take a controversial or key issue of our day and we sort of run it through the lens of the gospel and the scriptures. What what does God think about this topic? Um, We've covered everything from kind of ideological or political warfare. What What does God have to say about the way we get caught up in the right and left battles of our current moment? We talked about race and ethnic reconciliation in February. We talked about orphan care. Uh, foster care, adoption in March. Um, And every time we have these events, we have a a meal together, got to do dinner, and we have question and response with specialists. And everyone who attends in the room gets to participate with Q&A. It's really uh, a wonderful evening. Uh, It costs 20 bucks to attend. Hope you can come in the future. So, okay, this event, the one you're about to hear, is all about deconstruction. And the first thing I want to say is... The book of Jude in the New Testament commands Christians to be merciful to those who doubt. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in the conversations around doubt and deconstruction, there's a lot of unmerciful dialogue that happens on the internet. And even even when you listen to um, podcasts from various sides of the deconstruction conversation, there's just a lot of unmerciful language. But Jude Verse 22 (laughs) commands Christians to be merciful to the doubter. And Psalm 73, which which dates hundreds and hundreds of years before the New Testament, Psalm 73 is actually a liturgy for doubters in the family of God. And it starts, you know, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart. But immediately the psalmist, he changes his tune and he says, but as for me, I'm struggling to believe in God's goodness. I'm struggling to believe because why? I see evil, oppressive people thriving while good people are suffering. And then Psalm Psalm 73 basically describes this psalmist's faith spinning out, but it's in the form of a worship song. Like, that's a liturgy for doubters. So we have this in our blood as a people of God. We have this in our our worship life, in our history, is there should be a, a huge, wide open space for faithful doubting in the family of Christ followers. And that's what we wanted to talk about on this on this uh, night back in April, which you're about to hear. So my friend, Josh Porter, uh, he's a pastor up in Portland. He wrote a book called Death to Deconstruction, which sounds intense, and it is, but don't let the title fool, fool you. It is a nuanced, humble, helpful, pastoral, vulnerable story from Josh's own life on how he went through about with deconstruction and depression even. And it's a powerful book. And he, he basically gives the lecture version of his book at this, at this night, which you're about to hear. So for 45 minutes, 
Josh is going to give his lecture. And then you'll notice in the recording, there's a hard pivot to uh, what we call TikTok theology. Basically, uh, after Josh speaks, I, th- I throw a bunch of questions up on the screen that, that Aaliyah Persley, one of our pastors, she kind of harvested these questions from TikTok, some of the most viral videos against Christianity that TikTok has. And we picked three of the most viral pushbacks to Christianity currently on TikTok. And we had the tables in the room, everyone who came, just discuss. Like, if, if, if I didn't know what the Bible was doing, I would have the same problem with the Bible as that question. That was the spirit. It wasn't to slam dunk on the questioner, uh, but we wanted to give space, uh, honor, honor the doubter. Really what Jude says, to be merciful on those who doubt. And so we brought in the voices of those who doubt uh, by way of, you know, their TikTok questions on the screen. And so you're going to hear about 48 minutes into this recording, you're going to hear us putting TikTok theology, we call it, up on the screen and just discussing. And Josh will give his responses to those those, uh, TikTok questions as well. And then we, we finish with the third portion of the night is audience question and response. And it it got really fun. There are way more questions than we could have answered in one night, but hopefully you find this helpful. So without any further delay, uh, here is Josh Porter on deconstruction. Hope it's helpful for you. Uh, Thank you guys for having me again. I was here all morning and got to meet some of you. It's quite sincerely been just a beautiful time hanging out with your church. I really have loved every minute of it and loved getting to meet some of you and talk to some of you. I understand that talking about deconstruction at length is, like I said this morning, a divisive conversation, and it also, unfortunately, kind of pushes a lot of our, you know, personal and theological squirm buttons. I understand that. I want to say before I get into the the luxury stuff that it is sincerely not my intention nor my desire whatsoever to... Um, be reductive or unhelpful or to reduce people to caricatures. I do not mean at all to delegitimize honest questions and pain and struggling with sincere doubts and questions about Jesus and the scriptures and the Bible. Hopefully that's evident in the things that I say. And if you, you know, get so inclined to actually look through the book, that's evident there as well. But I just want to say that and make that very clear. I'm was raised in the deep south during the 80s and 90s, and it was kind of the product of a conservative fundamentalist environment, and I went through uh, what was for me anyway a very painful period of deconstruction myself. So even though I'm speaking from personal experience and the kind of anecdotal experience of many, many pastoral conversations that I've had over the last, you know, uh, 10 years or so, I understand that we can't possibly address an issue this big over the scope of a single evening. So this is not meant to be like the questions have been answered. Hopefully this can be a helpful, contributive, conversational moment for all of us, and myself absolutely included. Is that all right? Great. Thank you so much. Now, obviously a lot of ink has been spilled over deconstruction, not just by me, but by countless people who have come before me and talked about it probably smarter than I have. I've been having conversations and debates about deconstruction 
for years now as a pastor and an author, yes, but also just as another dude trying to figure out how to follow Jesus with other people who are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. There's so much emotional and social media angst hopelessly entangling the deconstruction conversation that it has become nigh impossible to navigate without activating defenses or reducing complicated people and stories to caricatures, which is bad news for those of us sincerely wanting to figure out how we confront the ongoing reality of questions and doubt and how we're supposed to process things like people we know and love leaving the faith or how we navigate church hurt and hypocrisy. Now, I'm not by any means a sociologist or a psychologist. I would never presume to have all the answers to questions about deconstruction, and even if I did, I doubt we could get to any of them tonight. So instead, here's my decidedly narrow map for the evening before we get to the questions in a little while. First, what is deconstruction? How should we talk about it? What causes deconstruction? And finally, how do you walk with someone, including yourself, through deconstruction? Are you guys all right? You still with me so far? Great, thank you. So let's start in 1996. That's where I picked to start this evening's conversation. So like many teenagers of the 90s, I was an enormous Nirvana fan. We all were at the time, still am. The band's final album, In Utero, was released in 93, and of course, if you know the story, Kurt Cobain ended his life several months after the album was released, and the rock music of the 90s slowly but surely crept forward without him. So by 1996, my teenage angst had traded in the, the, the sort of flannel shirts and tattered jeans and Stratocasters for, in my case, black leather and synthesizers. Uh, but the Christian music industry is typically about five years behind, give or take. So <laughs> that year, uh, I was forced to wander a Christian bookstore with my mom, which feels real cool when you're a teenager, uh, and a well-meaning clerk in the store saw me and kind of sidled up beside me, shaggy hair, and, and asked, Psst, do you like Nirvana? Uh, and I told him I did. So I guess he saw right through me. And then he, this is a real story, he extended a cassette tape as if it were some, you know, illicit material, some secret that he had. And the band, the band and the album were both called Skillet. Um, <laughs> Yes, that's right. Which, uh, you know, even as a teenager in 1996, I thought was kind of dorky. The, <laughs> the album cover depicted an actual iron skillet, as if no, no other possibility had occurred to this designer. Uh, I don't mean to make fun of this band or this designer, but they won't hear this. So, <laughs> this band, the shaggy-haired clerk promised, sounds just like Nirvana. And these were the kinds of promises that Christians made in those days. <laughs> the best that the industry could offer was a late copycat of something better. <laughs> now, I didn't know it then with this cassette in my hand, which my mom bought for me. And I listened to him. I was standing in a 90s Christian bookstore. Uh, you know, the contemporary stylings of Stephen Curtis Chapman were soundtracking the moment, surrounded by sepia wall art and cross decorations. But two things about this interaction would follow me here this evening into this seemingly never-ending conversation about deconstruction. What I, angsty and cynical, perceived to be basic Christian out-of-touchness and skillet. But we'll get to that in a second. First, 
Deconstruction. So let's start here. What is deconstruction? I wrote a book. I've been talking about it all morning. It feels really weird going on and about, I wrote this book. You should check it out. But I wrote a book called Death of Deconstruction. Now, I chose that name, and I battled the publisher, who rightly worried that the name would be misunderstood, to keep the name. Of course, it will be misunderstood, I told them. And won't that be an interesting dimension to whatever conversation or enthusiasm or outrage that the book manages to stir up, if it stirs up anything at all? You don't call your book Death to Deconstruction Oblivious to the Inevitable Backlash. So it started early, the backlash that is, before the book was actually published. And it followed me around on the internet and throughout the whole like promotional cycle that even nobody authors like me are made to complete in the world of publishing. Why, oh why, I've been asked so many times, did you call your book that? So strongly worded is the title that it seems to leave no room for good deconstruction, for honest, sincere deconstruction, for necessary deconstruction. After all, I have been asked many times and almost immediately, then again and again and again throughout the process of these conversations, can't deconstruction be a good thing? To which I usually answer, well, depends on what you mean when you say deconstruction. Now, this may be a semantic escape hatch on my part, but in the book, I define deconstruction with Webster, so somebody smarter than me, as the act of analyzing a text or a linguistic or conceptual system by deconstructing it, typically in order to expose its hidden internal assumptions and contradictions and subvert its apparent significance or unity. Or definition two, and this, is one, this one's much easier, to reduce something to its constituent parts in order to reinterpret it. Now, I go on to say that deconstruction has become, at least in our context, a sort of umbrella term used to describe a process by which someone who was once a Christian embarks on a quest to jettison their Christianity. If you Google the term, for example, and you rifle through social media posts or articles in relevant magazine or Christianity Today or even books published over the last 10 years, that's what the term will usually mean. Someone who was once a Christian who went through a process to be less of a Christian or not a Christian or something else entirely. But whether you're asking someone with, you know, like an obvious axe to grind against deconstruction or a proudly deconstructed post-church podcaster, no one quite agrees on the specifics. Deconstruction has kind of fallen to the social media oppression Olympics, which is a way of thinking in which individuals claim ownership of certain genres of pain and suffering, and then they assume the mantle of arbiter over who is qualified and permitted to claim the same kind of pain and suffering. Who has had the worst experience? Who has suffered the most spiritual abuse, etc.? If you don't get up to this level, then you have nothing to say. So early on, a certain vocal corner of the internet came after me insisting on proof that I had actually suffered legitimate church hurt. Or for, and this is a question I got asked, I want to see a timeline of your deconstruction in order to verify its validity. How long did it last? And what kinds of questions did you ask? You know, that kind of prove to us, in other words, that you really deconstructed. Now, members of this same angry rabble also question whether I'd ever actually experienced the pain and despair that I describe in the book, or if I'd manufactured those things in order to lure naive would-be deconstructionists back to religious fundamentalism. Whoa, you know, that was my <laughs> trick the whole time. Apparently, 
Deconstruction isn't always deconstruction. If I had sincerely navigated deconstruction, I have been told, then I would not be a Christian anymore, at least not this type of Christian. And others disagreed. For them, deconstruction is more of a out with the bad, in with the good approach to theology and biblical interpretation. So my point is that sometimes, I think personally, we just lose words to evolving cultural usage. Terrific means good rather than terrifying like it once did. Literal means figurative almost 100% of the time. Um, you know, the word sovereign belongs to the Calvinists. They have that one, you know, and they, that, that's theirs. And deconstruction has taken a certain shape in the spiritual pop culture dialogue for better or for worse. So deconstruction, we can battle against it and argue about semantics, but deconstruction has come to mean what it sounds like it means at least most of the time, to dismantle and undo a faith once held. But whether or not this is good or bad, necessary or disastrous depends on who you ask. I was raised in a conservative, fundamentalist, Southern Baptist environment in the Deep South during the 80s and 90s. Should I not have deconstructed my upbringing? I know as well as anyone that for a certain demographic, untangling a flawed religious upbringing is the perfect occasion for social media heroism. To, to broadcast one's big, brave story of surviving the big, bad church. And no one wants their bold, beautiful bravery called into question by someone's arrogant little book title or, you know, allowing a term most precious to their story hauled into the unforgiving light of reinterpretation or questioning. But the conversation, at least at a cultural, colloquial level, has already sort of settled the term, give or take analyzing a concept in order to expose its hidden internal assumptions and contradictions and subvert its apparent significance or unity so that one can reduce that thing to its constituent parts in order to reinterpret it. That's the dictionary term, or specifically in our circles, an umbrella term to describe a process in which someone who was once a Christian embarks on a quest to jettison their Christianity. So if that's deconstruction, then how are we supposed to talk about it? If you have to qualify what you even mean when you say it in the first place, and if that qualification means something different to the different kinds of people, how should we talk about it? What do people even mean by the phrase good deconstruction? This is where I would argue personally it's most helpful to simply use different terms. If what you mean by good deconstruction, for example, is evolving, adapting, and maturing in your theological positions and liturgical practice as a Christian, then I would argue that in church history, we just call that spiritual formation. Yeah. Everyone who sets out to follow Jesus has to do that. Everyone, whether you have been hurt significantly or had a very good run at this whole church thing, Everyone has to do that. You learn stuff and you unlearn stuff. You grow, you wrestle, you doubt what you believe, and who you are changes over time. You are transformed into someone else. Spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. Everyone is becoming someone else slowly over time. Sometimes that transformation is very subtle. Sometimes it seems really drastic. You trade one theological system for another or you trade one church tradition for another, or you give up a dogmatic position that you once held, or you learn to accept ambiguity on a certain thing, whatever. All of us do that. Anyone who follows Jesus has to do these things 
They are inevitable, and we don't call them deconstruction, at least not throughout church history, because we aren't taking things down to expose their inherent contradictions and illegitimacy. We are remodeling the same old house of our faith. We don't leave, we don't burn it down, and we don't get a new house altogether. But that is a frustrating, frustratingly complex conversation, and more often, we prefer caricatures. At least I do. Which brings us back to Skillet. Now, <laughs> as someone who has now spent a decent amount of time talking to a decent amount of people about deconstruction, I've confirmed what you might have guessed. This whole conversation can get people upset. When people are upset, they lean into, into extremes. I know I do. And either pole of the extremes has extreme examples upon which we draw, or in other words, caricatures. Now, Ordinarily, a person in my position might refrain from naming names, but what the heck, I don't work here, and this ain't Sunday morning, so here we go. <laughs> I should mention that in my Deep South Southern Baptist upbringing, you dress up for Sunday morning, but then when you come back to church Sunday evening for a second service with a whole different sermon and everything, it, that one's casual. You can wear jeans to that one. So that's what we're doing here. This is casual, and we're going to name names. So let's start with this guy. There's a gentleman called Michael Gunger. Now, if you don't know, he's a dude who was once a semi-famous Christian. His dad was a pastor. He was a worship leader. He released albums about Jesus, the whole thing. Sound familiar? <laughs> I know another guy like that. Watch him closely. Anyway, he goes on a very public deconstruction journey. I don't think this is being unfair. I think this is probably how he would describe it. Goes on a very public deconstruction journey, yada, 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 starts a podcast where he and some friends say some stuff. For those of us who are still Christians, the stuff that they say begins to sound increasingly bananas. A conversation ensues, debate ensues. Guy became, maybe inadvertently, one of the spokespeople for deconstruction and brought lots of people along for the ride. And it became frustrating for a guy like me who pastors a small church made up of mostly young people who might listen to a podcast like this because to my personal estimation anyway, the ideas floating around in the deconstruction podcast world aren't always that balanced or thoughtful or even sensical in some cases. So people like me might use someone like Michael Gunger almost like a cartoon caricature of any and all people who are deconstructing what they once believed. Deconstructionists are illogical, someone like me might say, the pastor who's trying to fight the tide of this thing. They're entitled or they're uninformed or they're selfish or whatever it might be, which is rarely helpful because despite podcast revenues and social media followings, that kind of deconstruction mentality doesn't necessarily resonate with many, if not most, of the people with whom I've shared conversations or even debate. So there you go. There's one extreme. The other side of this is where we finally get back to Skillet. Now, I worked for a couple of decades in the Christian music industry. I was aware that that band from the cassette tape went on to have a very successful new metal career. But I did not know that at some point the guy who fronts the band started aggressively leading the charge against deconstruction. And the only reason I know this is because I started talking about deconstruction. Really early on, when people were first reacting to the name of my book, they were saying, oh, great, here comes another John Cooper. I said, who the heck is John Cooper? Turns out, he's the skillet guy. Now, <laughs> I was taken right back to 1996. I said, whoa, the skillet guy. Now, I'm, I am not feigning ignorance and service to some idea of how cool I am. I didn't know who it was. I just didn't know the guy's name or what he was up to. He doesn't know my name, I guarantee it. Apparently... 
John Cooper told Relevant Magazine that he believed it was high time to, and I quote, declare war on the deconstruction movement. And because of this little phrase, he became infamous amongst those deconstructing as being insensitive and kind of flat in his thinking. And he was subsequently depicted as a sort of unthinking religious fundamentalist with, uh, you know, a, a zero tolerance policy for honest wrestling and legitimate doubt. Now, once again, in my personal experience, I, ha I know and have known many, many people to battle their way up and out of broken church upbringings and environments without abandoning their faith. And this, if you're not with us, you're against us, dichotomy does not represent their disposition toward those deconstructing or to deconstruction itself. Not everyone who deconstructs or even deconverts fits the kind of snowflake progressive stereotype, and not everyone who isn't friendly with or doesn't always speak gently to the pop culture deconstruction movement is a conservative fundamentalist. Now, of course, it would be much easier if they were, but they aren't. So, to talk about this with empathy and reason, we have to avoid oversimplification and caricatures, even when they make us more comfortable. But even if you do embrace nuance and complexity, it doesn't mean anyone else will. Here's another weird thing that happens when you write a book about deconstruction. I sincerely set out to demonstrate compassion and honor and nuance when I made this dang thing as someone who has wrestled through a painful period of deconstruction himself. Now, of course, you could argue that I failed, but I tried. Either way, for many, the book itself became like a Rorschach test. At some point, my spiritual director told me, you got to stop reading book reviews. But before he did, I listened to him, but before he did, uh, I did read them. And I noticed that like when people said nice things, it often went like this. Oh, it's so balanced and compassionate. Even my friend Evan this morning, he's like, it's nuanced, it's balanced, it's so compassionate. Oh man, it made me feel so good. But then the disdain often went one of two ways. Here's the bad reviews. One is, this guy's just another bleeding heart progressive. Or, or right next to that review, this guy's just another conservative right-wing evangelical fundamentalist. How on earth did people reading the same book find all three very different extremes in there? I have found that even when you try to demonstrate balance and even when there are some who see it, ours is a world unfriendly to nuance. And many, unfortunately, prefer absolutes. To not coddle every deconstructing whim is, for some, conservative fundamentalism, apparently. Or to dignify honest questions and doubts is, to others, soft, accommodating progressivism. And it can mire the complicated, often ambiguous details of one's experience with deconstruction and stereotypes and extremes, which stunts conversation if it doesn't kill it altogether. And that isn't helpful for obvious reasons, not least among which is that the events and actions and circumstances that often lead one to deconstruct or deconvert are almost always more complex than stereotypes allow. So what does cause? deconstruction. Now we can't unpack any and every reason, and obviously if you polled a room this size, you'd get all kinds of different stories and answers. But generally speaking, there are a number of hurdles on the road of discipleship that tend to color the majority of conversations that I've had with people over the years about why they feel they can't keep it up anymore. In my book, I call them great predators. The first great predator is biblical illiteracy. 
The Bible, as you know, you, people of Park Hill, know very well, is an ancient library of writings drafted by dozens of authors across multiple continents and several language over several several languages over several centuries. It is the most complex and sophisticated feat of literary artistry in history, and it's also more than that. And yet, it is more often understood by its enthusiasts and detractors as an entirely literal, linear, moral manual for life in the modern world, ultimately leaving the reader frustrated and lost or even embittered and despairing. So the first great predator, in my opinion, is biblical illiteracy. The second great predator is the problem of evil. If God is so good and powerful enough to do anything, why is there so much evil and injustice and suffering in the world? In my experience, uh, many deconstructing or deconstructed Christians were only ever given an answer to the problem of evil that implicates God in evil. And of course, then who can blame them when they find that their trust in a being who engineers their suffering begins to erode and ultimately vanishes. The third great predator is a politicized Christianity. If you consult any depressing survey of why Americans are fleeing the church and Christianity itself, you'll find listed somewhere near the tippy top of the list, Christians are too political, belligerent in their politics. They're told stuff about love and mercy and justice, but then they see ugly, mean-spirited tribalism and say, no, thank you. Thus, the fourth great predator is hypocrisy. And it's not just the embarrassing landmarks of church history like the Crusades and colonists and Jim Crow and the prosperity gospel. It often seems as if those most ardent about Christian morality are those least likely to uphold it. If it's not the sex scandals and embezzlement of televangelists, then it's the indulgent Instagram lifestyle of influential pastors or the casual racism of a church-going family member or the generally unkind face of cultural evangelicalism. But then, after all that, the final lumbering predator is self-denial. Even if you get past the politicians and the hypocrites, and even if you survive your great tragedy with your faith intact, you will find that all of this, the whole movement to which we belong, comes down to Jesus, whose invitation to apprenticeship, whose prerequisite was deny yourself. Modern Western individualists simply cannot abide so outrageous a demand. In our Diet Coke world of hashtag do what makes you happy, the audacity of Jesus' call to self-denial isn't just bold, it's backward, bigoted, and dangerous. And with one foot in the cultural narrative, the undertow eventually sweeps one out to sea. Now those are, generally speaking, some of the big, broad strokes, faith issues that contribute to deconstruction, but that obviously is not the end of the story. You and I are navigating a unique cultural landscape of deified self-gratification and a certain kind of pushback against any and all things institutional. So in my book, I argue for something that the Christian movement calls orthodoxy. It's something that I'm constantly on about, orthodoxy, which means right belief. The kinds of things that are summarized in the early church creeds, those non-negotiable foundational tenets of Christianity precious to disciples of Jesus all over the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, I do believe that orthodoxy is a wide countryside, and it includes many traditions and theological perspectives, 
But without some comprehensible parameters around what is true and what we believe, Christianity almost immediately departs from the faith of the apostles, the early church, the church mothers and fathers, and the movement of Jesus across centuries, cultures, and the world, and becomes hopelessly ambiguous, forever subject to the interpretation of the individual. Christianity has to be something and not something else, or it is meaningless. All of us inevitably embrace the idea of ultimate objective truth. This is wrong and this is right. Culture, for example, at least in our day and age at this time, loves to appeal to the idea of love, for example. But if love is ultimate, what is love? What isn't love? For some in the evangelical tradition, for example, warning sinners of the dangers of hell with caustic fire and brimstone rhetoric is loving. What could be more loving than trying to save someone's soul? But for others, that kind of language is hateful. Without right belief about love, who can say which is which? If we appeal to love, on whose authority do we invoke its supremacy? Do we appeal to the supremacy of love on personal sensibility or our own experience or, or the evolving cultural narrative or the Jesus of the New Testament or the Jesus of the conservatives or the Jesus of the liberals? Love must be something and not another thing. And to make any meaningful truth claim one way or another, one must appeal to some authority. Meaning if you say love is this, not this, the next fair question would be who says? So everyone already has orthodoxy. We all believe certain stories about the world and the people in it, and that it would be better if other people agreed with our perspective. This baseline belief informs the way we think and talk and live, the way we might vote or shop or what we post online or what we write on a protest sign. Everyone already has orthodoxy. Does believing one thing is true and another isn't necessarily make one a closed-minded fundamentalist or a bigot? I am the pastor of a church overwhelmingly made up of people younger than me. Tons of them believe something heretical, meaning outside of orthodoxy, what the historic Christian movement has held to be true for hundreds of years. Now, some of them believe these things consciously, and they know exactly what they're doing, and others just haven't heard any different. They're new to Jesus, or they're new to the church tradition, whatever. Now, of course, I do not reject or banish or scold these people when I hear some kind of idea that I think is kooky or heretical. There have been people participating in my church for years now who aren't even sure they believe in God at all, and they're welcome to be there. We love them, but I do believe in God, and this makes what I believe and what they believe different, and both beliefs can't be true. I believe in faith one thing is true and another isn't on the mediated authority of the scriptures and, of course, the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I will never bully or coerce, and I will welcome and invite them into the accountability of what I believe is true with all the messy imperfections of the human experience, that is, the church, where we share orthodoxy as our standard of truth. But if one thing is true and another isn't, whether it's love or Jesus or something else, there has to be orthodoxy, meaning right belief. There has to be the way. And to live into and according to something that isn't true must have consequences. Now, the New Testament uses very strong language to describe those consequences, namely death. 
You and I live in a strange time and place during which everyone believes in ultimate objective truth because we can't practically carry out our lives any other way. But many of those same people are outwardly hostile to the idea that one thing can be true while another isn't. The, the church, for a certain specific demographic, represents that profanely arrogant claim to exclusive truth. The church is an institution that believes they have the one right way of life. And this, many say, is simply a bridge too far. And so, they say, they just can't do it. And that's something that I've often heard and used during my own period of deconstruction. For, for those in the throes of deconstruction, it is the language of helplessness. We talk about deconstruction as if it is a coercive force against which we are hopeless to resist. Meaning the rhetoric kind of goes, I just couldn't do it anymore. Or I wanted to believe, but I could not. And to be sure, we do not always have unilateral control over our doubts. And we can't change our emotions directly anyway. We can make conscious decisions that influence the degree to which we doubt. And we can make thoughtful choices that influence our emotional state. But to assume that faithfulness or faithlessness are merely mental, emotional dispositions that we simply do or do not have based on the hand that we are dealt by life I think, completely misunderstands what the Bible means by faith and belief. Human beings are complicated. Intellectual belief or, or mental assent, meaning what you think is true in your mind, no more equals genuine faith than temptation alone equals sin. You can be tempted and not sin, and you can have intellectual belief and no real faith. And unfortunately for those with one and not the other, actual lived out faith, willful, disciplined lifestyle, regardless of doubt and disposition, is the only substantive expression of discipleship to Jesus, according to the New Testament. So in the scriptures, the idea of belief is never a static intellectual position, as in, I believe in my mind that God or ghosts or Santa Claus exist. In the story of God, belief happens in and is carried out by the mind, the body, and the soul. It is faith realized by practice, by life itself. In the Bible, there is no belief that happens in the mind but is not also evidenced by lifestyle. This is really difficult for us to understand because in our culture and in our tradition, the concept of faith has been reduced to a colloquialism for intellectual belief without incontrovertible proof, meaning I don't have any proof that God exists, but I choose to believe intellectually in my mind that He does. We can't prove it, but we just choose to believe it's true. But the New Testament term faith always braids together intellectual belief with a way of living entirely consistent with what we think is true in our heads, even though our heads and hearts are volatile places prone to wander and doubt. Believing in your mind that Jesus is who he says he is, believing your mind in the God of the scriptures, it is of no real consequence in and of itself. It evidences no authentic allegiance or relationship or faith whatsoever. In fact, in the New Testament, you don't think I'm wrong, in the New Testament, James has this hilariously snarky way of putting it when he says, oh, you believe in God? Great. So do demons. Big deal. Who cares? That's worthless. And please hear me as someone who has, again, himself walked through years of painful doubt and despair and who continues 
quite honestly, to daily wrestle with the scriptures and with belief itself. I am in no way saying, oh, faith is hard, so what, suck it up, get over it. I have learned across the last four decades of my life with various degrees of success and failure that all that doubt and despair, all those questions and wrestling and cognitive dissonance is not necessarily an enemy of faith nor evidence of spiritual ineptitude. It just means you're a Christian. Like all other Christians before you, if anyone sets out to order their life to some extent around some lifestyle decision, they have to choose certain things and say no to other things. So the fitness enthusiast, for example, will on certain days probably not feel much like working out and they just learn what it means to do it anyway because it's a part of how they've decided to carry out their lives. Trust me, you know, my whole family has been vegan for a decade now and even though we all genuinely enjoy the good food that we get to eat, sometimes I just want a dang Twix. Where's the vegan Twix that's readily available and accessible to me that's not at a specialty shop, man? But I choose to not eat the Twix anyway. We make decisions to persist in what we choose to believe, and when that persistence is wonderfully downstream and comes with what seems like no effort at all, great, but we also do it when it feels as if we are leaning against a hurricane just to take a single step forward. There are many who simply decide against the next step. So how do we walk with someone, including ourselves, through doubt and deconstruction? Now, to end this part of our evening, there are two things that some of us observing deconstruction and grappling with our own doubts must balance in tension. The first is this, people will leave the faith. Jesus talked about that at length. In fact, in his parable of the sower, you know, this is the story of man plants these different sets of seeds. The first set is eaten by birds. The second burns up in the sun. The third is choked out by weeds. And the fourth is, uh, against all odds, finally grows. The parable is about the kingdom of God, which I think is really weird because that's God's triumphant renewal of all things, the inbreaking kingdom in the here and now, but also not yet a broken world restored and made new the way God intended. How to best capture the power and majesty of this concept with a metaphor. Bronze chariots, apparently not. Uh, a stampede of buff warriors, no. A tidal wave, a hurricane, no. A farmer planting seeds, most of which don't grow. It's not exactly a rousing sales pitch. Jesus' representation of the kingdom of God as tiny seeds, most of which don't grow, was, I think, intentional and sobering, and it's as off-putting now as it was then. And I read a New Testament scholar, his name's uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. He said, that is why on the text, on the parable of the sower, the great majority of the human race will always, if even subtly, reject Jesus. This is, I realize, a strange presupposition on which to build the movement that will change the world. A minority of success amongst a majority of failure. Authentic discipleship to Jesus, accurately understood, is a small movement with the world against it. This is good or bad depending on how you look at it. Author Mark Sayers has this great quote that frames that perspective for me again and again in my mind. He wrote, one person's beleaguered minority is another person's dedicated, committed core. It's all a matter of perspective. And so we stay the course. And that's the second dimension to this tension. We are staying the course, many of us. 
are staying the course. All over the world, all races and ethnicities and nationalities and cultures and genders and ages and shapes and sizes, the kingdom of God, as promised, continues to grow. And I mentioned this this morning, but I think it bears repeating. Maybe sometimes from where you sit, it feels as if, you know, the Christian movement is being stripped for parts by jaded ex-evangelicals, but that's not true. Maybe it feels as if it's been run into the ground by, by American politicians and scandals. But it hasn't, because the average Christian, again, is not represented by a cynical white California podcaster dude. The average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria. The same Christian movement from 2,000 years ago is thriving all over the world, where, though imperfect and complicated, though it may be, always has been, always will be, it remains undefeated by cynicism, doubt, despair, and deconstruction. And so we stay the course with all our questions and doubts laid bare before God and one another, and we commit to compassion for other people made in God's image who are wrestling with and through deconstruction while dedicating ourselves wholly to what we believe to be true. We can accept the way and the truth and the life of Jesus without giving in to a war zone mentality. This is what I like to call grace without compromise. I see no reason whatsoever to hide or water down what I believe to be true of the scriptures and the way of Jesus, just as I see no reason to weaponize it. I believe that I can hold a theological position that informs my belief and my practice without succumbing to a cultural narrative of black and white fundamentalism. Some days I believe what I believe with effortless fervor. Other days, I barely believe it at all. And on both days, I am a Christian. Now, I love to tell the story of Mother Teresa's doubt and despair. One of the great heroes of church history, Mother Teresa, apparently asked that upon her death, all of her private writings be destroyed, but instead they were predictably published. And the public was shocked to discover that this great figure of the faith who had lived out such a dedicated lifestyle amongst the poor and the sick she had privately wrestled with doubt and despair for what seemed like decades, and she wrote in her diary, this is an actual quote, there is so much deep contradiction in my soul, such deep longing for God, so deep that it is painful, a suffering continual. She wrote that she felt not wanted by God, repulsed, empty. These are her words, no faith, no love, no zeal. Souls hold no attraction. Heaven means nothing. To me, it looks like an empty place. The thought of it means nothing to me, and yet this torturing longing for God. And she wrote to a friend, pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything, for I am only his. Now, upon, upon reading these diaries, many dismissed Mother Teresa as a fraud. She'd been a fake the whole time. But I remember reading those diaries and thinking, she sounds like a Christian. At the behest of my publisher, I published a podcast miniseries to accompany this book that I wrote because apparently this is what one does when they write a Christian book these days. Now, anyway, I figured I'll talk to people who are Christians. I'll ask them about what was hardest for them, what the biggest obstacle has been for them, um, how they deal with doubt and discouragement, watching what seems like a lot of people bailing out on Jesus, organic sorts of conversations, no pre-planned questionnaire, no you know minimal editing, no like... Um, strategizing before we hit record. No real agenda, really, other than conversation. But I did end up asking everyone about the secret to their faithfulness. How did you hang in there? How are you doing it now? 
And I kid you not, one by one, without pretense or prompt, they all came back to the idea of church. Stumbling along with other Christians, the idea that someone would ask them about what they believe, someone would hold them accountable, someone would call them back. Now, sure, I have got a very long way to go, but as far as I can tell, the church is the only place that can make room for and honor both our convinced faithfulness and fidelity to the way and our broken, teetering, despairing unbelief. Now, something that Evan said when we talked on, our, on the podcast was that the easiest way to believe is to go believe with other people. The idea that whether it's orthodoxy or heresy, church or deconstruction, belief looks for companionship. Deconstruction and deconversion in my own story made the promise of camaraderie often in the digital world primarily, but without orthodoxy, without a creed, without a way, these cells, these groups, be they digital or real, real world, ultimately offer little more than tribalism, which is, I think, a frail unity around what we are against. Because if truth is ultimately subject to the individual's evolving sensibilities, there can be no shared standard of good or evil, right or wrong, truth or lies. It's up to you. Whatever you believe, follow your truth. The only thing around which we are united is what we are against. We don't like systems. We don't like the church. We don't like God, whatever. But the church, on the other hand, is a place where, rightly lived out, can be the broken, dichotomous people we often are. It can house both parts of our lives, a people who are resolved to follow Jesus with doubt and despair in tow and who are asking others to help them as they help others. Now, I read a lot of surveys and statistics. I read a lot of them to write this thing. And the one that stuck with me the most, that was most surprising to me and that I've come back to again and again in my mind, found that among those raised in Christian homes who have remained a Christian later in life, one motif that they contributed to remaining Christian was that as kids, they had at least six or seven adults in their lives who were Christian and who were honest about their struggles to keep the faith. Not six or seven adults who were never hypocrites. Not six or seven adults who were never guilty of moral failure. Not even six or seven adults who never wavered in their commitment to Jesus. Just a group of people who wanted to follow Jesus together and didn't pretend it wasn't hard. In other words, church, I do not have all the answers to every unique, complex, and often very valid question about the Bible or about God. There are questions that I am still asking, things that still bother me. Some I've resolved, at least for now, and there are others, if they remain unanswered forever, I care less and less as the days go on. Because faithfulness isn't about avoiding some skulking phantom of deconstruction that snatches us from the narrow road against our will. It's about going forward in seasons of spiritual plenty and in seasons of spiritual want. And we can do that together. So I believe now that we're going to move on to the uh, question side of things. Look at this guy with his plugins there. This is all a very sophisticated operation. <laughs> Thank you.
And so for the next three or four minutes, can we respond to slide six? I think this is one. You just talk about church being the place. Well, what if the church has left the building? So, uh, and the main points, people aren't leaving church. This is, this is their words. This is the word of the TikTok um, theologian, so to speak. You know, uh, the deconstructionist or whatever, whatever word you want. They're not leaving church because they're, you know, just hurt and whining, but because of legitimate sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, gaslighting. People aren't leaving due to a lack of discipleship. They're leaving as an act of following Jesus, this, per this person says. Because of politicized churches, Trumpism, COVID response, Christian nationalism, and promoting misinformation. The church has left the building and is finding thousands of other ways of spiritual expression. So the questions are, why stick with it when we see legitimate hurt coming from it? Uh, does Jesus call us to abandon the church ever? If you find spiritual expressions that resonate, resonate outside of Christianity, is that, is that okay? Does God only work through Christianity? How do you know? And remember, um, responding to these humble, pastoral, informed, and helpful ways. Uh, where else? I, I always think of Peter. <laughs> when Jesus is like, Peter, are you going to leave me too? And Peter's like, Jesus, where else is there to go? Like, this is, I want to bring this to you. So... Um, Let's bring it to Jesus, bring it to one another, and just talk for three or four minutes about this one. And we'll, and we'll do this with maybe three more slides, um, broken up with Josh responding to each one after we do. So three or four minutes on this, go ahead and talk. We'll leave it up on the screen. So Josh, why don't you take it away on this one? How would you respond to this? I guess I would begin by pointing something out, and I don't mean this at all. I'm just going to ask you guys once, and then I won't repeat this over and over again, but I'm asking you to assume the best of me while I read from these questions and answer them. I genuinely don't mean to sound like, aha, or I've, you know, like found the, the silver bullet to anyone's argument. I'm just, for the sake of time, I'm going to answer as succinctly as... And, and he hasn't seen these questions ahead. He's really answering in the moment, so... Yeah, so if they don't sound premeditated, it's because they aren't. We don't know what's going to happen. Um... <laughs> I think one aspect of the question that's interesting to me is that there is what I might describe as a, a level of presumption in the way that it's worded. That the question, for instance, says, begins with people aren't leaving the church because, and it goes on to say. Now, I understand the sentiment and it's kind of hyperbolic and everything, but I got to tell you, as somebody who's been read the riot act by a lot of people that are angry with me about my church, I have had a lot of people tell me that they want to leave church because of hurt feelings. And I have heard a lot of people tell me that they want to leave church because of a lack of discipleship, for example. Now, I'm not saying that these other reasons are not also contributing to a lack of, of or erosion of faith in the church. I just mean that it seems to kind of want to embrace that, uh, those extremes that I was talking about. It's, it's, uh, we have a certain, this, this, the author of this TikTok seems to have a certain political perspective and that question is colored through the lens of that political perspective and they don't seem to make a lot of room for the possible ambiguity or just the, the, the consideration that it could be both things. It could all, the, both things could be happening in tandem. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is that it seems to assume that the church is this inherently corrupt or has become corrupt to the degree that it's irredeemable and that redemption is going to happen outside of the church. And I remember reading um, a, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, who after, I believe, the 2016 uh, elections noticed a headline on a newspaper as he walked down the city street. And the headline said, we refuse to let hate into our city. And this pastor read it and thought to himself, interesting, 
the assumption is that hate is somewhere else. It's not here. It's not us. It's out there. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. And whatever corruption is out there, we're going to like, maintain our purity against that corruption. The problem with this kind of thinking, to which I was very much a subscriber at a certain point in my journey of following Jesus. In fact, the thing that most bothered me was the church and the people in it. And then I realized I'm a people. <laughs> the assumption is that you can get away from people, that the corrupt people are in the church, and you can go find a spiritual expression somewhere else that will be um, wonderfully purified from human corruption. I don't like to be the bearer of bad news, but human beings are corrupt at a fundamental level. For more on this, see all of human history. <laughs> the idea that you can escape, not forget the church, just a religious institution and go find another kind of place where spirituality and faith exist and will be beautifully free of corruption or the kinds of things that they're listing to me personally, is a kind of pipe dream. It's unrealistic. You will go believe with other people and you will find corruption there. Now, that does not mean that we get a permission slip to be awful to one another. It does not delegitimize honest, like terrible things that have happened and will happen in the context of the church. And honestly and obviously, I hope, if someone was being legitimately like abused by a church or someone in a church, if they were being treated, ter treated terribly, I would never, as a pastor, say like, well, stick it out. You've got to go to church. That's just not realistic either. But I think the idea that you could pro possibly escape all of these things, I mean, it seems as if I remember an SNL skit where they satirized themselves and were like, we're going to create a bubble in which no one that disagrees with our political perspective will be allowed. It was like the tagline was like, it's like Brooklyn in a bubble, you know, and no one could get in unless they had certain views. It seems to me, quite honestly, that this is, you know, like the listing of certain kinds of politicization or Trumpism or even COVID responses, what, what this person is looking for is a place where no perspectives that kind of bounce off of their own are let in. And that if they were, they're dangerous and abusive. And then they lump those things in together with very real dangerous things like sex abuse and spiritual abuse and gaslighting. So it creates this kind of unhelpful cocktail of things that like, well, well yeah, I'll, of course, if you're talking about spiritual or sexual abuse, then this is a, that's a satanic evil that has to be dealt with and will be dealt with by God and should be dealt with by the church as well. But if you're talking about like, I don't know, the way churches respond to COVID and stuff, that begins to at least, I think we would agree, open a more nuanced conversation in which we have to make room for some level of disagreement and the possibility that the guy sitting across from you might be kind of a jerk sometimes or not understand everything or not be in the same place as you politically. And that's going to happen anywhere you go. So I think that the, the bottom line is, um, does Jesus call us to abandon the church? No, obviously I'm going to say no after everything that I've said this evening. I think to follow Jesus faithfully, it cannot be done except for in the context of community. And that's not a view unique to me. You read the New Testament. The New Testament just presupposes that all of its writing is going out into Christian communities. Even the individuals to which the New Testament was written are written in the context of that individual existing in a Christian community. It's to the church in Rome or to the church in Corinth or Timothy, hey, when you go back to the church, 
this is what's going to happen. The author doesn't go on like, hey, you really need to go to church. They just presuppose that the only way Christianity is done is in the context of relationships with other people because God is inherently relational and calls us into relationships with one another. And when you have relationships with one another, things are going to get weird sometimes and things are going to go wrong sometimes. There's no way avoiding that. The way we do it is in the church. Yeah, so good. So just to remind you, uh, write down any questions you have, and then when we take a break after a couple more of these TikTok things, uh, then you will be, you'll see the QR code on the screen. You can type in your question during the break, and then the last hour will be us interacting with you. And uh, so just a couple more of these. Slide one, Nate, is the title of this one was The Bible Made Me an Atheist. And uh, and in summary, again, Aliyah did a great job summarizing these true to form, true to their heart and the, the, the concern and the tone of voice. And so the more I read scripture and look for God, the more I couldn't find him. So if you want to become an atheist, read the Bible. Ultimately, it boiled down to why doesn't God speak through this thing? Why didn't God reveal himself when I asked him to? And, and ultimately, there's a huge problem in her mind. Uh, this, this was a woman that asked this. Why is the God of the Old Testament so cruel and controlling? And, um, and so you mentioned, he, you guys, his five predators thing, the great predators that he just talked about, that's a huge chunk of his book and it's worth the whole price of admission. So, so helpful. And the first great predator you mentioned is biblical illiteracy. And so I'm sure you're going to tie that in here. But, you know, what would you say, you guys, before Josh, you know, does his thing? Um, yeah, how, how, how would you respond to this? Uh, kick this around. Um, the Bible made me an atheist because I actually read it. Um, so go, three or four minutes. Let's talk that through. All right. So again, we're not going to solve all these problems for everyone tonight. The goal of tonight is to, is to demonstrate and to really live into the fact that these, these questions and conversations belong in the house of God. Like these belong in the house of God where we can truly err and lament like David. Psalms, you guys, this is Psalm 73 stuff, really. Psalm 73, surely God is good. Yeah, I, I was taught God is good to Israel, to those who have pure hearts. But as for me, my feet almost slipped when I saw the oppressors winning. Uh, and, and, and guess what? That's like a worship song in the Psalms. <laughs> it belongs in the house of God. Uh, there's a liturgy for doubt that God gives us that's 3,000 years old. And so this is, in a way, us communally inviting uh, Jude 23 to be real, like be merciful to those who doubt in this house. So, um, so the Bible made me an atheist, Josh. Uh, your, your first great predator is, is biblical illiteracy. And I'll just be honest, I do think the Old Testament is wild and, and, ter and often terrifying terrifying. And I remember Tim Mackey, uh, who's a mutual friend of ours up at the Bible Project, he said, um, I remember sitting in a Q&A like this, where it was Tim Mackey and Scott McKnight talking about the Old Testament. And he's like, I actually think it's, it could be kind of criminal to just like, <laughs> to like turn people loose on the Old Testament without Jesus, like without a guide and without the church. It's, that, that's, that's, it could be awful, disastrous. Um, so, and the, that's true. I, th I think there's truth to that. And so, all that to say, um, uh, get Josh's book, and here's his quick version, probably. Yeah, well, Jesus is a lot to live up to. Uh, yeah, I think, I guess I would say, 
first of all, that I really resonate with this question and honestly with how strongly worded it is. I think it would be very disingenuous of me to pretend as if I was never bothered to the degree that this person apparently is currently bothered. So I, not in like, oh, I get it and reducing, you know, like I, maybe I can't empathize, but I can certainly sympathize and I think I understand where they're coming from. What has been among the most helpful things for me um, learning to not just stomach the Bible, but honestly love the scriptures, is understanding the scriptures as the world's most sophisticated work of uh, artistic supremacy. Now, I believe with the entirety of church history that the, the scriptures are breathed out by God, that they are authoritative. Like, I believe those things to the core of my being. I also believe it is an incredible work of art. When I understand it as a work of art breathed out by God himself, it has all the stuff I love in a work of art. There's violence, there's like despair, there's strong language, there's incredibly gross stuff, and there's beauty and there's poetry and it's, there's nightmarish stuff, there's uplifting stuff. And you can find either one just by opening it to, to any place. Um, and I think that as, as weird as that sounds, when I think about the great works of art that have uh, really inspired me as a human being and have resonated with me over decades of my life, if I were to isolate a single scene in a film, or if I were to isolate a single page in one of my favorite novels, I think I'm, I could make a case that like this book is terrible, this book is horrific, or this character makes no sense, or this is a book that promotes some kind of horrible thing, when it's not read in context of the entire story. When you understand the scriptures as one unified, cohesive story that leads to Jesus, it will not alleviate every single issue that you have with the scriptures, and it won't answer every single question you have with the scriptures, but it does give you permission to interpret everything in light of the whole, and that makes for not just a, a Bible with which I feel I can be more at peace, but it makes for a more interesting work of literature and, and artistic sophistication as well. Again, breathed out by God, inspired, authoritative, all those things. So this person, for example, says, why didn't God reveal himself when I asked him to? Now, this is gonna sound like a really pretentious way of answering this question, there's no way around it, but I feel as if, you know, as an artist myself, that this is a question that I've been asked when I've made anything that I've made. Why isn't the meaning more evident? Why isn't it more obvious? Why isn't it more explicit? Why did you say it this way? Why didn't you say it another way? I think that the reason is God is an artist. God is the artist. He's the original artist, and his, he calls all his people to what I like to describe as the spiritual discipline of art appreciation meaning he wants you to come and find and understand him in things like creation. It says that in the scriptures. He wants you to come and find and understand him, obviously in the spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and seeking and in church and in worship, the ways that we assume God wants to be sought and found. But he also wants you to seek him as one turns over a, a multifaceted jewel in the light of, like, wow, look at it from this angle, look at it from this angle. And the scriptures are designed by their own admission for a lifetime of meditation, which means that this other thing, um, you know, why didn't God reveal himself when I asked him to, 
again, empathizing, and I, I get, I think I understand how that feels, but it also seems to imply that there was a moment in time when it was supposed to happen, it didn't happen, and now it's over. And the God of the Hebrew Scriptures and the Jesus of the New Testament seems to be more interested in a lifelong relational covenant during which he has disclosed more and more over time. It's unfortunately very long and very arduous. It takes years of reading and meditation and sitting in mystery and learning and resolving, answering questions, all that kind of stuff. But it gives us the permission to be like, I don't know why that's in here and I don't like it. I will continue to read. I will continue to meditate. I will continue to turn this over in my heart. And as someone who has, you know, like an appreciation for certain works of art that some people might find upsetting or offensive, I have learned to see certain scenes in certain works of art that might be upsetting to a certain audience or even to myself as contributive to an entire story. And instead of going like, Ew, why, that's, why is that in here? This whole thing is terrible. I ask questions like, why is it in here? What does it mean? What does it mean, intend to say to the audience? What did the author have in mind? What did the director have in mind? What does it say about me that I react this way? I allow other artists that kind of permission to mess with my mind and, and, and inspire my thinking. But then I approach the scriptures and be like, God, you better be more obvious and more evident. The greatest artists, the original artists, I give less permission than I give, you know, Steven Spielberg or something like that. So I think that... I understand, I resonate, I think that like, if you wanna know why the God of the Old Testament seems so cruel and controlling, that is a very good question. And that is a question that I would like to investigate in light of the whole. I would never sit up here and be like, you know, like Evan just said, I, mean, I would never say, nah, the Old Testament's great. But I would offer at least a little friendly pushback and say like, couldn't you also word the question, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so gracious and kind and forgiving all the time? Because he's depicted as both, or at least audiences receive him as both ways in the Old Testament. You guys are in Jonah right now, and the whole message of the book is that God is too forgiving. For he, like, won't stop forgiving and loving his enemies. It's detestable that he does that. You know, that was Jonah's pushback against the God of the Old Testament. Like, you always do this. You forgive everyone. It's ridiculous. Now, I don't mean to say like, so you should never have any problems with God when he seems to be depicted as cruel, but something that I honestly did when I was struggling with this exact problem with the Hebrew scriptures is I took a red pen and I took a blue pen and I went through and I underlined every time God was depicted as I understood it as gracious and forgiving and accommodating and loving. And then the blue pen, every time I was like, ooh, that one's weird. Why did he say that? That seems horrible or that seems violent or that seems cruel. And, you know, like a quarter into the Hebrew scriptures, it got ridiculous. So it's just like everything's red, 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 blue, red, 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 blue, you know? So I feel as if it's easy to receive the blue passages as if they're the only passages in the entire Old Testament because they are really troubling to our modern sensibilities and for good reason. But we learn to then dismiss all the red passages and we, don't, we just don't treat works of art like that. We don't say like, oh, there's this one weird thing, therefore the whole thing is invalidated. You could, but that's not a very um, sophisticated or literate way to understand art. I think we should treat the Bible even better than that. And that will take a lifetime of meditation in the community of God's people. So it all comes back to church again. Church, 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 church. <laughs> so good. Here's, here's the last one, and then we'll go to the break before all of our interaction and Q&A. So here's the last one. Slide two here, Nate. So this one kind of goes past 
The last two. This is like, okay, third way. This is someone finding a third way. And I think this is a noble, this is a noble effort. This is a noble effort. So this, the title was, You Don't Need Reconstruction, because, you know, one of the pushbacks to deconstruction is, well, let's get beyond deconstruction and, and move into reconstruction. So this person is going one step further. No, 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 forget reconstruction. You just need self-love. Main points, yeah, the Bible's sacred. There's good stuff in there and some pretty terrible things. Just like Josh said, I concede that. Ultimately, but ultimately, the Bible isn't the goal. It's not the end all. We don't need to reconstruct. Some people don't need to go back to church. Self-love is the core goal of what you should be focused on anyway. Jesus said, like, love your neighbor and yourself, as yourself, and, and this will help you love others. So uh, questions are, why do, why, do, why do you keep coming back to church, Josh? You're so, so frustrating. Why do you keep coming back to church to be Christians? Uh, so do, and, and I, I honor this. I think this is, this, is, this is someone, this is someone thinking and, and moving in their in their in their minds, in their souls, in their hearts, toward a, like a viable option in their, in their body and mind right now. And, that's, and this is, in a way, to be very honored. So questions, why do we need church to be Christians? Do we, do we need reconstruction after deconstruction? One, one guy who's a, a famous Christian artist back in the 90s who is now, he's now an atheist, he, uh, he, he took this line and he said, uh, you know, I'm done with deconstruction, reconstruction, construction, whatever, and now I just, I've, just, I've just settled in hypothesizing in real time. I'm just hypothesizing in real time, and I'm free. He claims to be free. And so, like, what if, what if that conversation came into the church? Like, what would that look like if that conversation came into the church, in your community, like, genuinely? Like, so I would love to just turn us loose uh, onto that question. Uh, and again, the spirit is, I love Dan Kimball up in... Part of this TikTok theology idea came from Dan Kimball. This is kind of how he runs his church Sunday school and uh, up in uh, Santa Cruz. And he always frames it with, you know, if, the, if I didn't know what the Bible was doing, I would have the same question. That's, he, he's like, this is, I would be this, this is where I would be. And so, uh, so in that spirit and, and with mercy for the doubter and all of that, go ahead and talk this through for three to four minutes. And then Josh will wrap us up, and then we'll do like a five-minute little maybe stretch, and then we'll do Q&A in the room and be done. <laughs> sounds, sounds like fun, whatever's happening over there. I want that party. All right, so here we go. Final, final word from Josh. Josh, what do you think? My answer is not going to be as exciting as whatever's happening at this table. <laughs> that table's getting it done. Well, I think you know this question has true stuff in it. Not as if I'm the arbiter of truth. I just mean that it's easy to point it out. Like there, you know, the Bible is sacred. There's good stuff and there's also terrible things. But I would qualify that as it depicts terrible things. It does. And they say the Bible isn't the end-all, be-all. That's true. Jesus is the end-all, be-all, not the Bible. Um, then they go on to say you don't need to reconstruct, which seems almost like a non sequitur. 
So people don't need to go, some people don't need to go back to church. Self-love is the core goal of what you should be focused on. This will help you love others, which immediately makes me go, wait a minute, love others. So you're going to be involved in relationship with other people, and that's somehow important. That's, a, that's an aspiration, a goal of your self-love will express itself in love for other people, which implies that you will be in some kind of shared life or relationship with other people. We're right back to church again. The, <laughs> I think that, you know, we have, and I'm saying this as someone who, again, one of my biggest beefs during my painful period of de deconstruction was with the, the church. I had had a very bad experience with, not all bad, but I had some very bad experiences with church growing up. I was, I'm very cynical by nature and wired to a fault to kind of see the worst in things, pessimistic, and had a very dim view of people and of institutions and of the church itself, and I could only see um, what I expected to see. And, and that was kind of like my cynicism confirmed in people and things and practices. So I, I sympathize with the low view of church as someone who had one for, for a very long period of my life. But what I've come to understand is that we are all compelled to go find relationship and community with other people. And this is not a uniquely Christian perspective. This is something confirmed by neuroscience and by sociologists. We are wired for human connection. You know, there's this great, you go read the Wikipedia page on this thing called Rat Park. There are these uh, series of scientists who wanted to um, kind of confirm the effects on relational living with other rats in a study that was uh, actually ultimately about drug addiction. The theory prior to Rat Park was that addiction occurs, or and I'm paraphrasing, but addiction happens when someone is exposed to addictive substances, and then they therefore become chemically addicted, and then that becomes like struggle to become a, to a battle against addiction. And what I think the timeline of events was that during Vietnam, there were these soldiers who had become addicted to opiates, but then came back to the States away from the obviously stressful environment of the war and were no longer using opiates anymore, which prompted some of this research in Rat Park in which there were rats who were put in isolated cages, just one like kind of shut off from everyone else, and they were given access to water, normal water, and water laced with dope. And then there were rats who were put in Rat Park, which was this giant, luxurious, go look at pictures of it, it's amazing. There's all kinds of toys and trinkets and there's no walls and the rats can just interact with one another and have rat sex and eat food and like just <laughs> run all around Rat Park and enjoy one another. And in Rat Park, there's water laced with dope and just plain old water. And what they found was that the rats in isolation immediately went to the dope water and drank until they were dead. The rats in Rat Park, tasted the dope water, and when they determined that it encumbered their experience of communal living, they wouldn't have it anymore. They just wanted the ordinary water. And the conclusion from that study was that it's not, it's oversimplifying to say that addictive substances in and of themselves create addiction, but that human beings reach for connection. And when there is something that encumbers that connection, they go to something else to find it. And that could be an addictive substance, or it could be something like pornography, or it could be something like television or a career. They reach for something that will substitute that real, what we would argue in the you know, Christian tradition, God-given desire to have relationship and connection, both with God, of the God of the universe, and with one another. 
And I think that the idea that you can somehow get away from community, the, the idea that like, oh, it's, you know, I think that maybe the caricature that they're painting is like churches in this, you know, the building and the songs and the pastor and everything. But really, you're going for, you're going to go find all those things and you're going to go find something to believe. You're going to go find other people to believe it with and you're going to find some way to share it in life. And when that disappoints you, you'll go find the next thing. And we've always done this. It's why people look for subcultures. It's why people look for family dynamics or they find family or they find connection online and then they're dissatisfied when it doesn't work out the way that they thought it would. The idea that you can somehow escape the human longing for relationship and connection, I think personally is a fool's errand. And when you get to that relationship and to that connection, you will find that it's always imperfect and that it's always broken. And so it, to some extent, it will always disappoint you, but it will also be the only way that one can carry out life practically. So there again, the idea that like, you know, you need to love yourself, that you can love others. You're just creating another relational paradigm in which to live. Now, the idea that you should love yourself is, of course, not just true, but an overlooked reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And this is something that it took me the most years of my life. The last thing, part of my deconstruction to die, was an intense self-hatred uh, against which I struggled for many, many years and, and which I justified with Christian rhetoric. Because, you know, like, oh, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, or there are these really awful things that are true about me. And I would, you know, pilfer the Bible and find just verses to justify my own self-hatred and felt as if I was doing God some kind of weird favor by not liking myself. Because if you don't like yourself, well, that means that you're not vitiated by pride, when in reality, self-hate is a form of self-obsession. And so... I learned, I mean, like kicking and screaming, God dragged me into a place where one night after years of therapy and spiritual formation and accountability and vulnerability over dinner one evening on a date night, I said, I think I like myself now. <laughs> she could not believe the words that she was hearing out of my mouth. And it wasn't this huge like fireworks went off or anything, but I just said, I think that I've come to a place where I can say that I like myself now. And I was not prepared to say love even at that point. And Evan pointed out to me in the space between that when Jesus says the greatest commandments, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We interpret that to mean, and he was right, he pointed out, you know, you interpret that to mean like love your neighbor as yourself because you're so selfish, you're already doing all this good stuff for yourself. Do some of that for your neighbor, why don't you? But I think that it's also true to read it as love your neighbor and love yourself. Because if the God of the universe has vested such an incredible amount of self-sacrificial love in his son for your sake, both as a community and corporate level, at a community and corporate level, and at an individualistic level, then I think that, you know, it, in some sense, I know this is really strong language, but it is an affront to the God of love to say, I will not love who you love. In the same way that God requires us to love our enemies, he requires us to love ourselves as well. So in that sense, I think they're dead on. That's, that's an important insight. And when you do love yourself, yes, it does create love for other people as well, and vice versa, rightly lived out. And you will do that in community, whether you want to or not. It may not be in a church building, but it will be done in community. So you might as well go to the church building. They got free coffee. They sing songs. 
I so really good. don't know what's so bad about it. So good, Josh. That's incredible. Off the top of your head. Uh, so good. So we have five minutes till Q&A. So five minute break. And there is, there it is, the QR code for you to join the Slido Q&A platform. Start typing in your questions. And at 7.30, Josh will begin answering them. So um, see you on Slido. Here we go. So we will end promptly at 8 o'clock. So 28 minutes to answer like 36 questions well. So here we go. Um, oh, that one, just, that one just won. So if scripture was written by sinful humans, then why should their words be deemed infallible? Like, should I just believe it because of the whole God-breathed thing? Air quotes. <laughs> Yeah, I like the way that that's worded. Like, should I just believe it because of the whole God? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, in the interest of time, yeah. No, I think what's interesting to me about and what I like most about the idea that the Bible has human co-authors, meaning that there's a divine author and there's a human author, and this seems to be Jesus' perspective as well. There's this really interesting place in the Scriptures where he's arguing with religious leaders, and he says, you know, David speaking by the Spirit says, and then he quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures. So David under, or Jesus understands that it's David writing, but he's speaking by the Spirit, so that there's kind of this collaborative effort that happens in writing the Scriptures. And David, as you know from the story, is a pretty messed up individual. So this plays right into this question. The, the Scriptures were co-written by sinful humans. And that means it actually gets more complicated than this because unlike, you know, other religious traditions like, say, I, I don't know, Mormonism or in certain uh, theological branches of Islam, the Christian tradition has never held that the authors of Scripture go into some kind of trance in, during which their hands are puppeteered on the papyrus and they, you know, like write exactly what God wants them to say as if they had no kind of autonomous effort whatsoever. Instead, the Christian tradition has always understood that the human co-authors of the Scripture have a certain amount of say in what gets put in the Scripture, which means that their personalities are kind of intact on the page and their agendas, their predispositions, the audience to which they write are all considered by the author and the Spirit who's writing through them, which further complicates the whole paradigm. The way I understand it is this, and, and this might seem like overly reductive or kind of simplistic or stupid, but it seems to me that if the God of the universe wanted to communicate to human beings and to disclose himself to human beings across place and time, the most um, logical way to do that, according to the way that we understand our brains as human beings, would be through the medium of a story. And that is exactly what he has done uh, through narrative. Most of the Bible is, is a story. Uh, the whole thing is a story, and then most of the, pa the passages within the Scriptures are narrative as well. If the God of the universe, who chose to disclose himself through a story to human beings, chose to write collaboratively through human authors in a way that would preserve, that would allow the human authors to write what they wanted to write and to accomplish exactly what God wanted to say, I believe that he can do that. I believe that he has done that. I think that to a certain extent, you know, that jokey thing I said at the beginning is like, oh, God breathe, should I just believe the God breathe thing? 
I mean, I, I, I do. I believe with the Christian tradition that these scriptures, by their own admission and the testimony of Jesus' followers across centuries of the Jesus movement, have held that God breathed them out through human authors. Those human authors were not perfect, but the co-author was, which means that even though the human authors got a say in the collaboration, God had ultimate say in what was inspired, transmitted, and then passed down as part of the Christian tradition. So herein, the, the answer of faith comes into the conversation and becomes a recurring motif throughout this conversation, I'm assuming, which is that, like, I don't, I'm not one of these people that is just trying to, like, you, you know, play the faith card and get out of difficult questions, because I understand the comp complicated nature of a question like this one. But, you know, Evan and I were joking about how recently I was, you know, a, in a conversation with a gentleman, very nice gentleman, who had deconstructed the point of becoming um, at, at least an agnostic, if not an atheist. And he, as he was kind of like, oh, well, this is one of my problems. And I said, oh, this is kind of how I think of it. He just said, I just, it just seems to me that there's no good reason to believe the Bible or the story of the Bible the, of, of God other than just faith. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, not to say that there's no good reasons, but ultimately there will be the requirement of faith. I think that that's true of just about any worldview, including naturalistic and scientific worldviews as well. And I'm all about science. I'm not like anti-science or anything. So I have faith that the God of the universe, the God that raised Jesus from the dead, the God that instills the spirit in us alive and well today can, if he wants to, say exactly what he wants to say through human authors and make this com complicated, beautiful, complex feat of literary artistry that is also exactly what God has to say to people. I believe that on, on faith. Wonderful. So next question. Uh, you just mentioned you're a science fan. How do, you, how do we, or you, navigate the contradictions in Scripture from a scientific lens? So uh, assuming contradictions in Scripture from a scientific lens, such as uh, Adam and Eve um, with the age of the earth. So I think by that they mean uh, that all of humanity, you know, proceeded from two biological humans at a certain time, probably. Um, in, within this question, the idea would be very recently, within 6,000 years or something. So Noah's Ark genealogies, like Methuselah, 969 years old, really, like those things. Well, I guess that it... To assume that the contradictions or scientific contradictions in the scriptures is to read the ancient Near Eastern accounts of books like Genesis through a modern scientific lens. And I'm not saying that like, oh, you're never allowed to even consider science when you come to the scriptures. But the way that I look at a book like Genesis, for example, is what did the ancient you know, Near Eastern Hebrew mind that wrote Genesis, breathed out by the Spirit of God, intend to say to his audience at that time and in that place and across the people of God throughout centuries. I don't think personally, and I don't work here, but I don't think personally that, you know, if Moses wrote Genesis, for example, I don't think that he cared at all about relaying some kind of scientific manual for how the world came into being. I don't think that he intended, personally, and you're free to disagree, I don't think that he intended to relay a kind of exact timeline on the nature of creation. And I think that he's using all kinds of true but literary devices, be they literal or metaphorical or poetic or narrative, 
to say what he intended to say, which is Yahweh is the supreme creator God, and he made everything, and he made it good, and this is how it came to be. And then he kind of lapses in from one narrative to another. This is the universe, but then there's a garden, and then there's in, these individuals. What I guess what I would say about this is that within Orthodox Christian tradition, there's room for all sorts of interpretations about you know, scientific quibbles with Genesis. Many of us have been, I was at least, because from a very young age, I have, and now as 39-year-old, uh, have loved very much paleontology and dinosaurs. Read a lot about dinosaurs. When I was a kid, I just assumed, oh, you know, 65 million years ago, the Cretaceous period ended until a pastor told me, you can't say that. And I was like, oh, well, how come? It says right here in the book, you know, and there's the Yucatan Peninsula and the comet hit the thing. And he's like, no, no, it didn't happen like that. Oh, I had no idea. I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> I think personally, and, and what, what I've found to be true, quite frankly, is that, you know, I was given a paradigm that's like, no, we all believe this. We all believe it this way. And if you don't believe it this way, then you're kind of stepping beyond the bounds. And it turned out to not be true. There is, um, a variety of ways of interpreting what we might describe as the scientific discrepancies in a book like Genesis, or even the literary discrepancies of things like genealogies within the Orthodox Christian tradition, where you ask this scholar, he might describe, you know, Adam and Eve this way, or if you ask this person, he reads Genesis this way. I think that there's room to have those conversations and debates. You know, at your basics class, you do these concentric circles of, of values and disagreement. And I think that there's room for things. Like, to me, honestly, if someone comes into my church and like, I can't believe you said that thing about dinosaurs, um, that's so offensive to me. I wouldn't be like, get out of here, are you crazy? You think that the earth is so young? I'd be like, oh, you know, that's your perspective. And there, that it, there are people with, who hold that view. I think personally, maybe it was this. I mean, Evan and I had a professor who very early on was talking about hominids and how <laughs> he thinks that like, oh, when God breathed the nefash, the, the, the breath of life, into the human, it was probably like this hominid who had evolved to a certain degree and he breathed the breath of life and that became a living human soul. And everyone in the class was like, what hominids in theology one? I, you know, and there are these guys out here in rural Oregon, they're like, oh my God, my whole faith is falling apart. I had no idea <laughs> we were gonna get into hominids on day one. That was a great day. Yeah, so all that to say, I think that the answer is there's lots of ways that uh, you could deal with those discrepancies. And I encourage you, like, go read about them, find out about them, don't be terrified of them, don't be scared of them. And there are ways to read them holding to the idea of the Bible as inspired there and authoritative. Go. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I would love to just riff on this with you all night for the rest, the next 18 minutes till eight. We're gonna do, just tipping the cards, I think we're doing, after Jonah, a, a series on biblical literacy, which is very much this. And so, and so <clears throat> just, to, just to give you a, just to give you a, a snippet, it's not like, do you, you know, when we did Revelation last fall, someone came up to me after the second sermon and said, are you going to do Revelation literally or metaphorically? And just either or, what are you going to do? What, tell me. And, 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 I, and I just said, I, we're going to do it seriously. And basically, <laughs> like ba basically literarily. So that's, that binary is false. Like liter is literal or metaphorical. Well, instead of, do you take the Bible literally or metaphorically? Do you take it literarily? Uh, how did the author of that literature mean for you to read it? That's how we're going to read it, whatever the genre is. And so, yeah, with Genesis, the question isn't when and how did it happen, but who did it and why. And that's what the author wants us to ask. So um, this is a pastoral moment here. My brother deconstructed into universalism. What do you wish family community would have done for you, Josh, when you went through your darkest days of deconstruction? 
been asked this question. I've been asked this question, and it's a difficult question to answer because I don't intend to speak for everyone and their own wrestling through doubt and deconstruction. But to be quite honest, um, my grappling with my doubts and my own kind of personal, like, uh, in, inward despair that projected itself onto deconstruction like a parasite and kind of they both fed into each other, it was often irrational. Um, and it was primarily emotional. So I did have all kinds of really important, valid questions about the scriptures and about hypocrisy and the things that I write about in the book. But honestly, I was just really hurting inside and looking for a way to express that hurt and have it be validated by both God and the community to which I belonged when I felt invalidated by both. So I don't know exactly like that. And as someone with kids of my own, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling through preemptively. You know, I dedicated the book to my son, understanding and assuming that he will come to a point, my firstborn son, when he's like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore because we all have and we all will. And I think that honestly, this is conjecture. I don't know for sure, but... I was not personally surrounded by a lot of um, space to simply suffer. I was not personally encircled by a community that said, yeah, it sounds like it hurts real bad. And we don't need you to rush to any kinds of conclusions right now. And, and not, I'm not talking about coddling like, yeah, it is so awful and the church is so awful, but just saying like, yeah, it sounds like you're in a tremendous amount of pain. Instead, it was like, but can't you stop being in pain? And can't you think about these other good things? And, and we just want you to feel better, just feel better. Or it was like, no, you believe this wrong. You believe this wrong. We have an answer for you. We and this sounds funny because I wrote a whole book full of answers. But <laughs> it was this kind of kind of rushing to let's resolve it, let's resolve it, let's resolve it, rather than simply sitting down and being like, sucks. It's hard. It's real hard. And just sit there, sit there in, in the pain with someone, which is what I eventually learned God had done for me throughout that entire period, even when I overlooked him. So my encouragement to other people who are walking with people that they love dearly through painful deconstruction is, you know, I don't, I don't know, your, your family dynamic or your, your relational dynamic, I would never presume to speak for how you should do those things. But I think for me personally, to have people who would just sit with me in pain, acknowledge pain, and, and not coddle it, not placate it, not infantilize me or anything like that. And, and, and I didn't need necessarily solidarity, like, yes, it is all bad and I'm on your side, but just to be like, I see that it hurts and I can, and I can sit with you in this place. I think that that could have been helpful for me in navigating and, and would have pushed me not away from church, but would have kept me maybe on the precipice of community in that mm. sense. Thanks, Josh, for sharing that. Um, I, I love how you think about this next question. If God made everything, did he create evil too? Um, is it part of his plan? How can we trust a God who created evil or at least allowed it? And, and by that, we, we imagine, you know, a God who chose to create knowing the kind of world that would be created. He chose to create, supposedly out of love, knowing, as Stephen Fry so famously elucidates, that there would be insects that only survive by terrorizing you know, human beings as parasites in sub-Saharan wherever. So, um, and that last question, is it just for his glory? Does he just want glory? So, 
Uh, what do you think? God made everything. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I'll just go ahead and put my cards on the table for you guys. You can disagree with me if you want. If you feel inclined to go read this thing, you're going to get a lot of this. Uh, I do not believe that God is the engineer or creator of evil, and I do not believe personally that the language of allowance is even appropriate to describe God's relationship with evil. Now, the problem of evil, I included it in all my book stuff and rhetoric because it was also one of the huge things for me. And post, like, committing to church and Christianity and, like, outside of, like, okay, I'm, I'm learning to give up my, um, my, these quibbles with the scriptures and I want to be a Christian again, the problem of evil was the lingering thing for me, just observing so much abject suffering in the world. And I have this personality that's kind of, um, you might describe like a morbid curiosity, just drawn to... Uh, like really wanting to understand evil and suffering to the degree that other people are like, all right, we've heard enough. We don't want to know more about these things that you read on the internet or whatever. And I think that I, I kept going to God, understanding him at a transactional level or an engineer, like he's an engineer to understand the equation of why things are the way that they are. Because even if you have the theological perspective that I hold, which is that God is never responsible for evil. He does not ordain evil. He does not predestine evil. Evil is God's enemy, not God's tool. I believe personally that God is never responsible for evil. He brings good out of evil that he does not engineer, but I do not believe personally that God ordains or determines evil at all. Now, even if you hold that theological perspective, it doesn't get God off the hook because like Evan said, God created a divine order or a, a, an ordered reality in which he knew evil was a possibility. God is obviously pretty smart. And even if you hold my perspective, which uses human autonomy and the autonomy of spiritual beings to answer the problem of evil, why is the world so messed up? Because we have a say. Because God honored us with dignity and freedom. And because the spiritual realm has also been dignified with freedom and autonomy, meaning angels and demons and all that kooky sounding stuff that Christians believe, like me, I believe it. So it doesn't get God off the hook. God chose to create things the way, you know, C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he speaks at length about like, God apparently thought that the mess that the universe is in was worth the risk of love, of actual, genuine, relational love in which something of real consequence could happen in the created order and where he could share intimacy with human beings that choose him rather than like, you know, a world of automatons where only what he wants to happen happens all the time and we actually have no say one way or the other. Only things get carried out the way he wanted them to from eternity past. If God created a world, though, where we have freedom and autonomy, obviously God knew it could and would go wrong. And for years of my life, I could not wrap my mind around that or figure out how I could get God off the hook for that terrible um, predicament. Because it seems to me from my finite, limited human understanding that the outrageous amount of suffering in the world, one could make an argument, is not worth the relational love that God wanted from created beings. Now, this is going to sound really uh, hallmarky and uh, narrow-minded, but forgive me. 
My wife and I, after being married for five years, sat down and actually had a conversation in which it was kind of planned from the outset. We're like, oh, let's spend five years just us, and then after five years, we'll talk about maybe having kids. Five years go by, we sat down and actually had a conversation. Should we have kids now? Do you want to have kids? I think we should. And honestly, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's pretty nice when it's just us two. And she was like, I really, you know, this is something that God has always had on my heart, my dream to be a mom and to raise kids, to follow Jesus, all that stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I'll ask. You know, so I go to God and I'm like, oh, should we have kids? And I felt as if God changed my disposition over time. So we have a conversation. We decide, like actually in conversation, okay, let's bring kids into the world. Now, one thing that really bothered me about the whole thing was not like, I'll give up. I'll lose my independence. I can't go to the movies whenever I want. That bothered me less. It bothered me. But it bothered me less <laughs> than they'll suffer. If we make kids, they'll suffer. And we have no idea how much they'll suffer. It could be outrageous suffering that you and I can't possibly understand. Or it could, they could have a pretty cushy life. We have no idea. Could it possibly be worth it? And in those times of prayer, as ridiculous as this sounds, I felt as if somehow I already loved my children. And the idea of bringing them into the world just to love them was somehow worth, worth the risk of the inevitability of their suffering. If you understand God as primarily father, relational being, not cosmic engineer of reality itself. He is. He is cosmic engineer, but he is primarily relational love. He is father in heaven. Then it makes perfect sense that he thought love was worth the risk of this terrible mess because he wanted to be with us. That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think God allows evil as if it's like, this time, I'll let it happen. I think he dignifies us with human freedom, and he allows for the consequences of those actions. If God were to say, you know, on Tuesday or on Monday, you're free, do whatever you want, but then on Tuesday, like, well, not you, because that would be really awful, then we wouldn't really be free. Irrevocability is built into the definition of free will. To be free, we really have to be free, and that has consequences. Apparently, God thought the risk of love was worth those consequences. That's how I wrap my mind around it anyway. Thank you, Josh. So just time for a couple more. Um, this is a good one. It, uh, they're all good, but this one, I think can start to land the plane. The church will always be imperfect. But at what point do we say enough is enough and find a new church? That's a really, that's a really, really good question. And honestly, one that I've struggled to answer with people who have come to my church. So I get people who come to my church and, and like Park Hill, I'm sure, they come in and they've had a bad experience elsewhere. And sometimes I sit with them and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like that really was, it was terrible. What's, what's happened to you sounds really awful. And, and I try to walk with them and navigate what that's been like and what healing would look like in a new community and context. And other times between you and me, because my church people aren't here right now, I'm like, all right, this is some pretty petty stuff that made you leave this church and you'll be leaving ours pretty soon, I'm almost sure, you know? <laughs> Because the, the complaints that they have, I'm like, ooh, we're going to let you down fast. You just watch. It's going to happen. So, and you know this. You know that people obviously can remove themselves from relationship for really petty, self-centered reasons, or they can remove themselves from relationships for very valid reasons in the name of genuine, like, pursuit of health, mental health, emotional health, and just spiritual formation. So I think the best way to know the answer to this question is to seek it out in community with other people. 
you are not an island unto yourself and you can be wrong. I think that the, uh, the presupposition of Christian community is not just, you know, church as in with a capital C or capital Park Hill, but in the smaller cells of community with trusted people that you share life and relationship with. And, and there are two things that make that community dynamic unique in all the world. One is accountability. They'll actually call you on your sin. And the other is vulnerability. You can be honest about what's going good and bad in your life. If you just have vulnerability, everybody's just talking about what's wrong with no correction and no direction whatsoever. If all you have is accountability, everyone's just telling each other what to do all the time and nothing really happens because there's no vulnerability. If you find those two things together in Christian community, then you should be able to go down to trusted mentors, trusted friends, trusted peers, trusted family members and say, this is what I'm processing. This is what's happening in my church dynamic. What do you think? And let them speak truth to you. And chances are you'll get different answers. Some people might be like, oh, you need to tough it out. And other people be like, you need to run for the hills. So you learn to balance those things, praying before God with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. My short answer is don't make the decision all by yourself. Don't just feel as if you've been wronged and run out the door. Now, obviously, I'm presupposing that these are nuanced and complicated issues, not like a black and white issue of like abuse or, or something ter some terrible scandal that would be pretty fairly black and white. When it's the other kinds of things, the complicated nuance, like the dynamic is wrong or broken, or honestly, it just feels like it's not a good place for you to learn how to follow Jesus, not because you're wrong or vindictive, or they're wrong or you're vindictive, just because it might be time for you to find a different community, weigh it out with other disciples of Jesus who will be honest with you so that you're not becoming like a victim of your own individualism, if that makes sense. Really good. Comes back to church, it seems. Community. Even leaving church, church. comes back to church. Um, so, uh, you know, the question of hell came up a lot on, on TikTok. That was probably the fourth or fifth. We only got to three TikTok ones, but, but right up there was hell. Like, how can God let so many seeds die if he loves all the seeds? That's a great question. Isn't that parable weird? And it starts with all the ones dying, you know, like that obviously it's got a good ending. You don't want to start with the good one and then end with all the other ones dying. But it sounds as if it's a bad story. It's like, then this happened, this happened, and the birds and the weeds and everything. And, and that's not the end of it. All throughout the teaching of Jesus, he has a very like strongly worded teaching um, rhetoric around judgment and around you know, what the New Testament calls death or destruction, what some of your Bibles translate as hell or Jesus, you know, like the city dump. It's like being thrown in the city dump to be burned up and the stench of like, you know, all that kind of really, really strongly worded, uh, were worded teachings about what happens to what church history has unkindly called the wicked <laughs> or the unrepentant or those not saved, however you describe it. But it does seem to me that all of us actually want there to be some kind of sense of justice in the created order. We all want grace. We want to allow for the possibility of forgiveness. But we also want to believe, because it seems as if our brains are wired to believe it, that actions have consequences. Um, and I think that you know the story of the scriptures is of consequences of you know, a life apart from God and consequences of a life with God, and both in the here and now and in the age to come. You know, a lot of these TikTok arguments that we watched 
kind of um, strangely fell into the exact thing that were, they were critiquing, which was, you know, evangelicalism seems to make heaven and hell a bottom line argument. It's all about whether or not you're going to go to heaven or hell, and hell is this terrible thing. But then the questions themselves also make heaven and hell a bottom line argument in which heaven or hell become the reasons that one may or may not want to be a Christian at all in the first place. The Christian tradition doesn't really make heaven and hell those kinds of bottom line arguments, quite frankly. And, and the scriptures, I would argue personally, don't make heaven and hell the way we understand them in the spiritual pop culture, those kinds of bottom line arguments. Instead, the language is around life and death. The language is around choose this way of life and live. This is life. This is life to the fullest. God is after your joy. God is after human flourishing, not just like post-mortem, but now, right now, for your family, for your children, for your community, for justice, for the oppressed, for a, a battle against inequality and doing justice in the world. Life, choose this way of life. But if you do not choose life, the consequences are death. A life of, and the, the Bible chooses to describe those consequences as death and as life apart from God or being unsaved or wickedness or that kind of language. We look at it in our kind of Western American, like a Christian pop culture world as, did you, you know, the, the common thing is like you said a prayer, you get to go to heaven, but if you didn't say the prayer, you don't believe in Jesus, you, you go to hell. And the Bible just never frames discipleship that way. The Bible frames discipleship as lifelong apprenticeship unto a master and as life apart from God resultant in death as a natural consequence of sin. Sin is a weird Bible word. It's kind of like marred and all this weird misunderstanding, but it's actually, it's really strange. It's like a, a, an archery term. It means to miss the mark or to fail, quite literally. And the writers of Scripture use that word sin to describe like God has designed the universe to work a certain way. The Hebrew writers call it like chokhmah, like it's a, there's a wisdom in which we live in the universe for the sake of ourselves, for other people, and unity with God. And if you don't live that way, it misses the mark. It misses the bullseye, and that is a failure. And the consequences of that failure is death, or the, the, the you know, infamous line, uh, the beautiful line, with the wages of sin are death, meaning sin pays out in death. Death is the natural consequence of life apart from God. It's not like a punishment passed by God and like, oh, you didn't, you didn't follow the rules and check the boxes, so now I will strike you down with this punishment or this disciplinary fervor. The idea is that one way of life has natural consequences. The other way of life has natural consequences. All that long rambling to say that I think personally that once again, the idea that God dignifies us with human freedom answers the question for me personally. God apparently wanted a world in which there could be real chosen relational love, understanding that sin and evil would be a consequence and that, quite frankly, death would be a consequence. But the story of the scriptures is this scandalous, like a, a hyperbolic story of God running after wayward children to do everything to save them from death. And you don't believe me, read the thing. There's quite a lot in there about it from the very beginning until the very end. God's hopelessly romantic pursuit of rescuing his loved one, going into the burning building to save the adulterous lover. That is the story of God. But actions have consequences, and I think that's something that we can actually kind of wrap our minds around. 
Josh Porter, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for coming to our community for the day. Oh, thank you thank guys. Thank you so much. Okay. No, it's a lot. Poured himself out. I, I, I always think, days like this, I always think of Romans 1, uh, I think it's verse 11, where Paul says, I wish to come to you so that I might bring uh, a spiritual impartation. And... Um, Josh, that's what you brought to our community, more than just information and incredibly articulate answers, but just your presence and humility and the sharing of your story and your vulnerability was a spiritual impartation, I think, that will have ripple effect for a while in our community, and it's beautiful, so thank you. Um, a, a lot of you rushed into that universalist question, so, but unfortunately, we don't have time to uh, talk about universalism because it's after 8 o'clock. Um, this, what we're doing here with the Slido, this is, what, this is how we run our basics class. I don't know if you knew that. If you've never been to basics, it's really fun. And we interact with Q&A like this. You can ask anonymously. And, and this thing Josh keeps talking about called orthodoxy, the core tradition of Christianity, what you must believe and, and how you must live in order to be recognizable as Christian by 1,800 years of Christians who wrote everything down, we talk about that. We define it. What is orthodoxy? And how does universalism fit into that, if at all? We go there at basics. Um, so that's a pitch. There you go. Um, can we pray for you? Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you for this man. Bless his wife, Abby, his three kids. Uh, as he returns to them tomorrow, bless his community, Van City Church, with fruit, deep inward fruits, the spiritual formation, as Josh has been talking about tonight, that those that are in um, various crises of relationships and, and faith and all of that in his church would discover themselves uh, as apprentices being called into a new level of intimacy with their master uh, through, his, through his leadership, through his following Jesus, may his church follow Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Just bless him as he goes, give him safety. Uh, thank you for this man, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys, well done. Next month, uh, our May, our May House of Learning, we have our mutual mentor, Dr. Gary Bashirs, with us, and he's gonna be doing, he's gonna be doing a whole, the whole thing on uh, for, forgiveness culture versus cancel culture and what it looks like to lead the way in forgiveness as a church. So, see ya.